Good morning, Tab. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I was here back in uh, Octo- no, October, last October, uh, my, when my son, who had just been born, was 10 days old. So I, I feel like I've come a little bit out of the fog of, uh, of new parenthood, but it's good to be with you. Oh, yeah. So this is Amos. He's uh, six months, and my wife Jessica. Uh, and Jessica is the, the operations director at Trinity Presbyterian uh, in Charlottesville, your uh, your sister church. So, bring you greetings from that church as well. All right, let's look at God's word. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? So Zechariah chapter six starting in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Let's, will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, We thank you for these words of Zechariah. Would you by your spirit point them to our hearts? Give us ears to listen. May we not be like Israel and have hardened hearts, O Lord. And would we see Jesus, Lord, in this passage? We ask this according to your spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So I am uh, working on a degree in, uh, at UVA in American religious history. And one thing that that has kind of set me, uh, set me on a path is, uh, is an interest in church architecture, in church architecture. Now, to, to be plain with you, and uh, I know nothing about building anything. The only things that I've ever built are Legos. Um, I can build a fantastic spaceship, um, if I still remember my seven-year-old plans. But architecture, um, so, so what I've done is whenever I go to a city to visit, I try to go and see the churches. And I picked up a book called How to Read Churches, A Crash Course in Ecclesiastical Architecture by Dennis McNamara, an architectural historian. And he writes this. 
all buildings have two components. The building itself and an idea that the architect tried to express. This is especially true for churches. People build churches because they believe in something. Their belief is evident in the styles and material of churches, but also in biblical concepts, such as the Temple of Solomon or heavenly Jerusalem. Let me give you an example of some of the things that McNamara shows. He says that there's actually a meaning to the sort of materials that an architect decides to build with. For instance, if there's a stone church, it's ripping on this idea that we are living stones comprised and built upon Jesus, the cornerstone. Or if you see wood in a church, it's meant to point you to the tree of life in Genesis and Revelation, bridged by the cross. Metal in a church is meant to uh, summon up value and strength. The Holy of Holies was gold. So architecture means something. And architecture is, is in the Bible. It is straight through the Bible. God has intimate details of architecture. I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Bible from Genesis to, to Revelation just, just that way. But if you're anything like me, you always get bogged down around Exodus 20 when they start building the tabernacle. Um, why do you need to know that the, the, the curtain had 50 loops and it was made of twined linen, blue, purple, and scarlet? I, why this random detail? Why this such detailed architectural plans? And it's not only in Exodus. It happens again in Chronicles, the building of Solomon's temple. It happens again in Ezra, with the rebuilding of the temple. And then finally it happens again in Ezekiel, the building of the heavenly temple. What does this mean? It's interesting because God cares about the most basic stuff of life. Wood, stones, carpenters, masons, seamstresses. And he gives credit by name to those who contribute to the building of his house. Now, I want to, this, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about architecture, and, and we're going to see in Zechariah that architecture and, is very important here. But let me remind you first where we are in Zechariah. Zechariah is, is a minor prophet. Uh, he's a prophet speaking to the returning exiles from Babylon. If you remember, Israel is cast into exile because they've, they've, they've repeatedly forsaken the covenant. And the temple is destroyed and they're taken over by Babylon, who takes many of their young men, their kings, back to Babylon. Well, 70 years later, Persia defeats Babylon and the king of Persia, Cyrus, declares, you can go back. And so Zechariah is a prophet to the community, this post-exilic community. And his chief message to them, along with his fellow prophet Haggai, is to rebuild the temple. Is to rebuild the temple. Haggai says, uh, it is a time for you yourselves to dwell in your, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Hey guys, saying, you're building up your own houses, 
but the Lord's temple is still in shambles. What are you doing? Just as a side note, I find it interesting that the Israelites were building up paneled houses. I didn't realize that wood paneling like the 60s and 70s, I didn't realize that the precedent of that was in ancient Israel. Um, but Zechariah's message to them is it is time to build out the Lord's temple. Will you say that? Build out the Lord's temple. Build out the Lord's temple. That's what it's time for this day. So we're going to use this architecture uh, metaphor to structure this sermon. So first we're going to look at the design, the architect, the builders, and finally the temple. So let's get into the design. Look at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles, held I, Tobijah and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Well, first, the Lord reveals his design by his prophetic word. The word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and Zechariah the prophet speaks it. That's how we know the Lord's design. But then we have this crown that Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah. You've you got to imagine, they, they're probably dusty, uh, they're, they're road-weary, and all of a sudden Zechariah comes to them and says, hey, I know you have silver and gold, and I want you to give it. I want you to take it. And you're going to do something for this. You've got to imagine, they're like, what, what's happening here? Why do we have to do this? Why are we forming a crown? Especially when the king of Persia is our king. What is this? What's happening here? Well, the book of Ezra gives us the context to this. Let me, let me explain what was happening. As soon as the exiles, the exiles were led by two people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. Zerubbabel was the descendant of David. As soon as they began to build the foundation of the temple, their adversaries tattle on them and send a letter to King Artaxerxes of Persia and say, these people are are uh, raising up rebellion by building up this temple. And so Artaxerxes immediately says, stop building the temple. Stop what you're doing. You see, these exiles faced a problem of power. How are they supposed to obey the Lord when they are powerless? The Lord says, build my temple. And Artaxerxes says, no, you shall not. They face a tyrannical dictator and the most powerful army in the world if they disobey. But what happens next? In Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, it tells us, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In other words, Zechariah and Haggai come, and they say, continue building anyway. And did you hear the way that, that Ezra talks about Zechariah and his God? In the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. In other words, Zechariah was saying, the king of Persia is not your king. It's Yahweh, the Lord. And you must obey him 
and not man. And so they, they create this crown. I think that's what this crown means. They put the crown in the temple, and this was to signify that the Lord was their sovereign power. To these political refugees who have no power, the Lord said, I am the sovereign power. I am king. Now, there's also this image of the branch. Let's look at verse 11. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So what or who is this branch? Well, this branch is a prophetic call word. Isaiah and Jeremiah used this several hundred years before Zechariah. And, and let me just read from you Jeremiah 33 about this branch. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, what promise is he speaking about? In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, branch to spring up for, for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. In other words, we have to know a little bit of Israel's history here. The Lord had made a promise to David that his offspring would sit on the throne forever. And the Lord had also made a promise to the Levitical priesthood that they would be the ones who would serve him in the temple forever. And God ups the ante in uh, Jeremiah. He even says, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. In other words, what God is saying is that I will establish my king and my priests, and it's even more sure than day and night. Even more sure. That is the promise that the Lord is making. Now, we have to ask. This is deeply ironic. Because the Lord is making this promise right as Israel is losing their priesthood and their king. Because they're going into exile. The king is deposed and goes to Babylon. The temple is destroyed, decimating the priests. And so Israel had to be wondering, what happened to the Lord's promise? What about our king? We see no king. Where is the priest? They had a problem of promise. Did God really say? Can we trust the Lord's promises? Now, in Zechariah, we see a, a restoration of this. Because in Zechariah, we see the Lord has appointed Joshua, the high priest, and he's appointed Zerubbabel, a descendant of David. In other words, Zechariah is saying the Lord is making good on his promise. He's going to provide a priest and a king for his people. Finally, the temple. Let's look at the temple. What does this branch do? Look at verse 13. 
It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. The branch builds the temple. Now, the temple was a sensitive spot for these refugees. God's eternal presence. That's what the temple was supposed to symbolize. That God was going to abide with his people. That he would be with them. That he would not abandon them. The temple was a sort of wedding ring that signified that they were married. And yet, because Israel constantly, constantly committed adultery, the Lord had warned them, I cannot remain in a land that's filled with iniquity, idolatry, and injustice. And so God says, I'm going to have to move out. I'm going to have to move out. And the temple is destroyed. It's actually Israel who moves out in the exile. And Israel is wondering, what happened? Where is God now? Did he leave us? When he moved out, where did he go? Where is he? Is he here? Will he be with us? They had a problem of presence. And yet Zechariah, Zechariah is saying, God is moving back in. That God is moving back in. That he is rebuilding the temple through his people as a symbol that he loves them. This is like the renewal of a marriage vow. The Lord was determined to dwell with his people no matter how filthy or unfaithful they were. Like Hosea, he bought and brought back his wife from exile, from prostitution, and moved in with her, sharing the very same marriage bed that she had defiled. He has moved back in with his faithless wife. And the Lord says, we're going to make this marriage work. Because I am faithful. That is the Lord our God. He is the one who redeems marriages. Redeems covenants. To the problem of presence, where is God? The Lord shows himself to be a steadfast presence. The temple was a symbol of the Lord's steadfast presence. The Lord is more committed to you than you are to him. The Lord is more committed to you than you are to him. So recap. Zechariah's word to the returning exiles is it's time to build up the Lord's temple. And he gives them three signs, the crown, the branch, and the temple, to say, I am the sovereign power. I have sure promises. And my steadfast presence will be with you. All right. That's the design. Let's look at the architect. Who is the architect here? Well, we know that the branch will build the temple, repeated in verse 12 and 13. But who is this branch? Well, the text says it's Joshua, the high priest. Now, it's very interesting here that Joshua is crowned. Joshua is crowned. That's interesting because it's actually Zerubbabel who's the descendant of the king. Why is Joshua being crowned? That's actually a violation of, of powers. It would be as if Chief Justice John Roberts is all of a sudden called the president. Right? That's a violation of the separation of powers. So what's happening here? What is Zechariah doing? And it's interesting that in verse 13, Zechariah doubles down. And he declares that there shall be a priest on his throne. So who is this priest king? And this is where Zechariah is saying, it's Jesus Christ. That we have to read this as Christians. That, that 
It is Jesus who is the priest who sits on the throne. Listen to how Hebrews 1 talks about Jesus. After making purification for sins, that's priestly language, purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated, throne. That is Jesus. He is the priest and the king who solves all of Israel's problems. Let's look at that. Let's look at how, how he does this. He does this because Jesus is the crown, the branch, and the temple. So Jesus, the crown. Do you know when Jesus is crowned in the Gospels? In the Gospel of John? He's crowned at the cross. He receives the crown of thorns. And finally, finally someone recognizes his kingship, but it's on the cross, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus is the true King of Israel who has actually taken up suffering. This is not some king like King Artaxerxes who's pompous, who's far away from the people. This is a king who dies for his people. And he answered the problem of power. I am the power. I am the sovereign power of the Lord, says Jesus, on his death and his resurrection. In fact, we don't have to worry. We don't have to fear anyone because Jesus is the sovereign power. You hear that? Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. See, we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy us. The devil. Jesus has conquered him. We are not sitting ducks like those refugees. We have a king who has loved us and will protect us from all things. Now, Jesus the branch. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. And you are the branch. He picks up on this language, this branch. And not only that, but he is the solution to the problem of promise. Remember Israel? Is God, what has God done with his promises? But listen to this language of how Paul speaks of Jesus. That for all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of every promise that the Lord made to Israel. And since he is the fulfillment of promises, he is the true priest king who has atoned for our guilt. And remember that language of infidelity and uncleanness that Israel had? Jesus the priest takes you in your sins, in your messiness, in your dirtiness, in your shame, in your filth. He takes your garments off and he gives you new clean garments. He wraps you in his righteousness. Jesus, your priest, forgives all of your sins. You cannot think of one sin that Jesus, the priest, cannot handle. There's no shame. He is the Lord's sure promise. And his priestly activity continues for us. He is praying for you right now. He intercedes for us. And in fact, Peter says that because Jesus is the priest and king, that we are priests and kings. We are royal priesthood with him. This is our identity as well. And finally, Jesus the temple. In John 2, Jesus refers to his own body 
at the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. I love uh, your name here, tabernacle. You know what that means? That means that God dwells. God's dwelling. And John says that the word tabernacled in flesh, meaning that Jesus is God's steadfast presence with us. With us. And Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you wonder where God is? In the midst of your grief? Do you wonder where God is in the midst of your sorrow? Maybe in your futility? He's in Jesus. He's with you. He's with you. And we are then called the temple of God. Now, that's the architect. Let's look at the builders. Look at verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And that far off designation probably refers to the dispersed Jews who were returning to Israel from Babylon after the exile. But if this passage is really about Jesus, you have to ask, What's really going on here? Let me read you Ephesians 2. Actually, if you have your Bibles, I, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians 2, verse 17. Ephesians 2, verse 17. We're going to camp out here briefly. Ephesians two seventeen. Listen to how Paul uses the term far off. Ephesians 2.17, and he, referring to Jesus Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you hear that far off in Ephesians 2.17? Paul is speaking of Gentiles here. And this is the fulfillment of Zechariah. Zechariah says it's not only those Jews who are far off, it is those who are religiously and spiritually far off, the Gentiles. And they will come streaming in to the temple to worship the Lord. And do you hear Paul's metaphor of the temple? What is he talking about there? Paul is saying that the new temple is actually the church. That we are, we as the church of Christ are the temple. And we are made of a people of every race tongue, and ethnicity built on the cornerstone of Christ. What Paul is saying in Ephesians is essentially the same as Zechariah. You know what time it is? It's time to build up the Lord's church. It is time to build up the Lord's church. And this is where I think it's helpful. What relevance does Zechariah have for us? What relevance does Zechariah have for us? You might not even know where the book of Zechariah is. What relevance does this have for us? This letter that was written to these political refugees 
400 BCE in the middle, middle East. I think, I think that, that it'd be helpful for us to, to understand that we actually are a post-exilic church. That we, in many ways, are in the same place as these exiles. Let me explain what I mean. Christ has saved us. He has transferred us out of the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light. In other words, he has brought us out of exile into the new Jerusalem. We are pilgrims going to Jerusalem, the church. The church is a post-exilic community. We've been saved by grace and faith. And yet, like that post-exilic community, those refugees, we, we ask, what are we supposed to be doing now? I, we have grace, we're saved. What are we doing now? Right? What is the point of this whole thing called church? Is it just a, a party where we pat each other on the back and we have grace? No. Zechariah's word to us is that it's time to build up the church. He tells us that our mission, our purpose as a post-exilic church is to build up the Lord's temple. Now, I, I find it really interesting that uh, Haggai, Haggai says, hey people, why are you building up your own houses when the Lord's house is being neglected? And there's a temptation for us in our post-exilic situation, that we build up our own lives, our own careers, our own families, and we neglect the work of the Lord's church. It's interesting that um, there's so much architecture in the Old Testament. As I said, you have Exodus, you have Chronicles, you have Ezra, you have Ezekiel. So where is the, where is the architecture in the New Testament? Where is the New Simple, the layout for it. And I submit to you this, that actually the entire New Testament is a layout of, the, of how we build the new temple, of how we build the church. That is the point of the New Testament. It is a, it is a blueprint, it is a design for how we build the new temple, the church of Jesus Christ, building on the foundation of the Gospels and the epistles telling us how we might build up the church. And if we diligently obey, Zechariah finishes chapter 6, verse 15, by saying, this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. That's why we're given instructions to diligently obey. We obey the New Testament and the building up of the church. Now, I want to I move to three points of application. In, in the scriptures, there is this there's this phrase called building up, and it comes from, in, in Latin, it's uh, edification, right? This, this ed, to edify and to build up or have this similar uh, term in, in, in Latin. And so I want to ask, what does it look like for us to edify each other? What, what does it look like for us to build together? And I want to give you three very specific points about what it means to build, how we build the church together. First, we build up the church by our speech. We build up the church by our speech. Zechariah is a prophet, and he speaks to the post-exilic community. He's building them up as he's encouraging them. 
He's giving them symbols of the Lord's sovereign power, of the Lord's sure promise, of the Lord's steadfast presence. And that is what builds them up. And that is how we build each other up. We speak of the Lord. And as, as priests and kings with Jesus, our role is twofold, to speak. We speak to God on behalf of others. That's our priestly duty. And we speak to others on behalf of God. That's our prophetic role. Intercession is that first one. Are you praying for other people? Are you praying for other people? Listen to how uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about intercession. A Christian community either lives by the intercessory prayers of its members for one another, or the community will be destroyed. I can no longer condemn or hate other Christians for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. In intercessory prayer, the face that may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed into the face of one for whom Christ died, the face of a pardoned sinner. Tabs. You will live and die by your intercession for each other. Now, I know in a church of this size that there is a lot of junk, bitterness, judgments, hurt. Are you praying for each other? Who would the Lord have you pray for this, even this afternoon? Who is the Lord calling you to intercede for? It's probably the person that you like the least. But then the Lord also calls us as prophets to speak to each other. Listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, as someone who struggles with his mouth, there are many words that we speak that do not build people up. Right? We have to be very careful that we don't give in to gossip, which we can sometimes say is ministry, or I'm really concerned about this person, right? Is that gossip? Are we tearing down? Are we speaking words of life? Words that give grace. I love that. They give grace. Don't you want grace? We deliver it to each other with our words, with our speech. So we edify each other through our words. Secondly, well, 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 actually, before we go there, you realize this is how Jesus builds up the church himself. That Jesus builds up the church by his intercession for us and his words of instruction to us through the scriptures. Jesus calls us to build the church the very same way that he is. All right, secondly, the church is built up by sacrificial gifts. Back in, our, our, in Zechariah, the sacrifice of Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah is mentioned. They're mentioned particularly. And, and what do they have to give up? They have to give up silver and gold. They have to give up their time and their talents to cast this crown. It's a sacrifice. The Lord builds his church through our sacrifices. Let me ask you a question. What are you building in your life? What are you building up? 
Are you building up the church with your time, treasure, or talent? Or are you selfish and stingy? What specific need might the Lord be calling you to give to? And once again, church, this is how Jesus builds us up. Jesus builds the church through his sacrifice. He's the one who's, he's the only architect who's ever given his life for the thing that he's building. Finally, the church is built up into communion. In Zechariah, the rebuilding of the temple was about communion with God and communion with each other. The exiles were meeting each other, coming back, being reconciled to each other and being reconciled to God together. Now, there is a version of Christianity that thinks that the church is superfluous. It's just me and Jesus, I'm good, don't get into my business. But that is not what Jesus thinks of. There is no Christianity without the church. Think with me. Imagine a cathedral. Have you ever considered all the elements that went into it? Think of the wooden beams. How much preparation that went into their finish. At the very least, that tree in the woods has experienced being cut, shaped, sanded, finished, and fastened. And this is what the Lord does with us. We are the raw materials of this church architecture. We are that wood, and God sharpens us, he sands us down, and he fastens us in the church to others. And if you look at a piece, look at a brick or a stone or a piece of wood that's fallen off of the church, it's useless, right? A mere brick, who cares about that? It only gets its meaning and its value when it's in the whole, when it's in the context of the church. That is what Jesus is saying when he says that we are being joined together. We grow together. You cannot grow in communion with God if you do not grow in communion with others. You have to be part of the church. Paul even says you are members of each other. I love that. It's not just that you are members of Christ. You are members of each other. That when one of you suffers, you all suffer. Let me provide an example of this. My wife, son, and I recently visited Jamestown. And they have the old, uh, the old colonial church, the, the outline of it. And at the very front, uh, probably right about here, there are four tombs of um, these saints that had died. And what I love is that this, their tombs are framed by the church. Their life and death can only be understood as part of this local church. That is the same for you. You are judged by Christ at the end. Yes, it will be an individual judgment. But you are judged according to what you did for your local church, for your people. You are each other's family. And this church is constantly growing. Remember how uh, Zechariah says that those who are far off would come help to build the temple? That is our mission, church. That we continue to grow. And we cannot save people. Jesus saves people. But what we do is invite people into the building of the church. That is what we do. And that's our mission, especially in this April outreach. 
is to build up and build out, up and out. It is true that we will at times fail to edify each other. We will fail to build up the Lord's church, but we who are the builders and the bricks in the Lord's house can be certain of the character of our master builder, Jesus our King. It is he who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus is our builder. Oh Lord, we ask for forgiveness for all of the ways in which we have tore down each other. For all the ways in which we have tore down each other by our words, by our acts of omission, our failure to pray for each other adequately, or by our stinginess in sacrificing all that we have to you and to your church. Oh Jesus, we pray that when people would look at Tabernacle, would look at this particular congregation, that they would be attracted to the love that is here. And that you would grow us as a church together. We ask this for Christ's glory and for our joy.